October the 23rd, 2016, lecture discussion number 258 on the book of Romans, which is chapters 9, 10, and 11, which you know by now, I hope you all know, encompasses Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, primarily. Though uh, Daniel 8, 9, and 10, and Revelation 12 and 18 also can't be omitted, can't be avoided, they most certainly belong. The point being that the study of Israel's restoration, that's what this is, where we are today, that is Romans 11, that places you, places me, places us into the time of Jacob's trouble. That's how it all fits together. That's the seven-year tribulational period, and uh, I hope you know that tribulation has three major uh, objectives. Objective number one is to put an end to the wicked ones. The wicked ones is the satanic triad. Um, Oh, I should put wicked ones, I guess. Note that I said triad. Satan has his seed, the seed of the serpent as contrasted with the seed of the woman. God has the seed of the woman, that is himself. The seed of the woman is God. The seed of Satan, or the seed of the serpent, is not Satan. That tells you the difference between the triune and the triad. Satan's seed is the Antichrist. The Holy Spirit is God. The seed of the woman is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The angel is God. We'll get into all of this. Those are all God. That's triunity. Uh, All are the, the sameness, oneness. Now, Satan does not have that. He has a triad where he is distinct, unique, created his satanic seed. Also, the Antichrist is, in fact, a created being that's distinct from Satan. And the false prophet, it counterfeits the Holy Spirit. So you have the wicked ones, the satanic triad. And one of the purposes of the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, is to put an end to the satanic triad. So ask the question, when did the satanic triad come into existence? How long has it been intact? The second one is one that most do not recognize. And that is the purpose of the tribulation is worldwide evangelism. Evangelism. God purposes to bring 144,000 Jewish uh, evangelists, for lack of a better term, a term uh, that are uh, endowed. They have capabilities that are unusual. He also puts signs in heaven that are unmistakable. This is a lecture. The people that are on the earth are going to see seven years of proof. Uh, extraordinary. Undeniable. And millions and millions turn to Christ. So that's the uh, second. The other, of course, is the focus on Israel itself. It is called, after all, um, the sign, or I'm sorry, the time of Jacob's trouble, which is Israel. So God wants to turn, he wants to open the eyes of what he calls the stiff-necked people. They are not inclined to um, see Christ for who he truly is. Israel has a blindness to them, and the blindness of Israel is cured in the tribulational period, they don't see Christ as the great I am, the truth of him. He is revealed. The revelation of Jesus Christ is accomplished in 
pre-tribulational period. He is creator God. He's the Messiah. He's the king of kings. Israel discovers it, learns that, knows it, and, us, and accepts it. And they be, are replay, I'm sorry, they are now put back into ministry, placed back into ministry, them being the nation of priests that they were intended to be. So that's the prism, the context for our entry into Daniel and Revelation. Got that? I hope so. So where are we now? Can you hear me now? Does anybody know what time it is? Does anybody care? I used to tell my basketball teams, they'd always ask me, Coach, what is it about, what do I do to get more playing time? And I'd always tell them, you have to pretend to like me the most. You don't have to like me. I'm not asking that. I'm asking you to pretend to like me, the best ones that pretend the best. And to this day, Louis's not here. To this day, every time Louis sees me, he comes up and he says, Coach, you look fantastic. That was 30-some years ago for him, I have to think. Oh, no. 1981. I have become old before my eyes. That's still funny. And when I went to something a while back, I might have mentioned it earlier. I can't remember if I have, or it was the uh, uh, the anniversary of the 1986 uh, state championship team. And I walked in, and they were it was what a restaurant here. And I walked in, and every one of them told me how good-looking I was. So it continues to this day, these 50-year-old men. (coughs) Why did I bring that up? I don't know. Does anybody care? That's how I did it. We've been lurching about the last few weeks asking the most pertinent of the pertinent questions, as is our customary approach. And as I mentioned in the pregame, Revelation 17 is a wisdom test. Ask why. He He says to you, This is the mind that has wisdom. Why is this the mind that has wisdom? It's a wisdom status report. If you possess a mind that has wisdom, Revelation 17, 9, then the meanings of the seven heads will be something you understand. So, just as you you can look at yourself and say, do I have a mind that has wisdom? If I do, I understand Revelation 17, 9. That's the scarlet beast. The scarlet beast has seven heads, Revelation 17, 3, 17:7. Let me put some of this on the board. If you understand the scarlet beast with seven heads, that is the beginning of wisdom in the sense of in the context of Revelation 17:3. Seventeen nine, uh, Revelation thirteen one. How much of that do you understand? The beast is one of the seven heads. He's also the eighth. So the beast is the seventh. He's also the eighth. Um, the beast was. The beast is not. The beast yet is, the beast will ascend from the abyss or the pit, one, two, three, four, five, and the beast will go to perdition. Do you understand that? Do you know who the beast is? Do you know when he was? 
Do you know when he was, is not? Do you know when he will ascend and yet is? Do you know when he will go to perdition? The seven heads are seven mountains. Why does he call them heads? Why does he call them mountains? What does it mean? Uh, the seven heads are seven mountains in which the mother of all harlots sits. Who is the mother of all harlots? And let me just put one more. We also have ten horns that are identified as ten kings. That may seem to be simple, but it is, in my view, probably the most difficult at all. And then, of course, the seven kings that five have fallen, one is, the other has yet to come. In order to decompound this, in order to know this, to get the wisdom that 17.9 Revelation says we should have, off we must go to Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Because it is essentially the same subject. The Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are necessary. So is Revelation 13. They are prerequisites to getting wisdom. That's our challenge. That's our intent here. Daniel 7, as you might remember from the previous weeks here, is the vision of the four beasts. And so we have our first problem. Daniel 7 says that we have four beasts. Revelation 17.9 says that we have seven heads. So what we have to do is somehow reconcile the seven beasts, I'm sorry, the seven heads with the, with the four beasts. That's our first major problem, how to fit the four beasts with the seven heads. Or if you prefer, if you want to think of it this way, is the first of the four beasts the first of the seven heads? Does that make sense? If it does, you're starting to think like me. If you don't like that, try this maybe or. Is Daniel's first beast the same as John's first head? And if not, then who would be the first head of, Dan, of John? Revelation 17. If there is a first head before Daniel's first beast, then Daniel's first beast is not actually the first beast. It's only Daniel's first beast. Which means we don't know who the first beast is. We just know of a beast in Daniel that Daniel calls the first beast of Daniel. It is the first beast of Daniel, but is it the first beast? Does that make sense? What have I done to you? Huh? <laughs> Those of you on the internet, I caused a sneeze out of Jenna. <laughs> well, that's better than what I usually get, huh? I hope you understand the question. Let's put it in one more other way. God gives to Daniel four beasts, and there's the first of the four beasts given to Daniel. And that beast is the lion. And that lion has correspondence to Israel's captivity because that's the point. Daniel sees the nation of Israel in captivity. And the one that put them into captivity is this lion. And Daniel is personally witnessing that. He is going through the captivity. But is it the first captivity of Israel? No. It's not. It is, however, 
I'm going to erase this now because people on the internet can can go back. But this is the basics of wisdom. Do you have the mind that has wisdom? Can you describe and explain these these elements, these components? If you can, you have wisdom. Why, I asked, is this wisdom? That's what he says. If you can't do it, why not? And if we are, if I'm correct, and we are the generation that actually witnesses this, then of us, all of us should know, right? That's the goal. But, where was I? Get rid of this. Internet people can just pause it and get it down. Okay. This, if this is not the first captivity, what is it? Why is it the first one for Daniel? Well, Daniel is involved in it, so that means that he is personally experiencing it. But it is the first captivity that results in the loss of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has fallen. That's a key piece of information. I cannot underscore enough the loss of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Daniel has seen Jerusalem fall. And he understood what that meant. He understood the doctrinal aspect of it. I touched on this hurriedly last Sunday. There's something about Jerusalem. And we need to know what it is about Jerusalem. Last week we talked about Melchizedek. That is Jesus Christ himself. He and Satan and Abraham have a meeting. Genesis 14. There's a meeting between them. And Satan wants the people. And Abraham, and offers to Abraham the, 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 the things that he captured when he freed them. And Christ is there. Melchizedek, the high priest, the king of Jerusalem is there. And you see this targeting of people and targeting of Jerusalem with Satan and Christ protecting Jerusalem and protecting the people. So, this is where it all began in the sense of uh, where we begin to notice Christ and Satan uh, side by side and Jerusalem as the uh, focus. Now, it happened before this. But at least here we see it. As plain as we can, as it can be delivered to us. But uh, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, 586 B.C. So this is the Babylonian. So we should look at the others, shouldn't we? Antiochus, 
Epiphanies. Did I write it down? Sometimes I don't. This time I did. I knew I wouldn't be able to spell it. Antiochus Epiphanes, Greek king of Syria. Understand, I have a Greek king of Syria. He raided the temple in Jerusalem. He slaughtered the Jews. He, is, uh, he sent them into slavery, forced them to eat uh, pig flesh. He sacrificed a, uh, a pig on the altar. He declared himself to be uh, godly. He was called the madman. And many theologians believe Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled the prophecies of Daniel 11. So they say what Antiochus Epiphanes did is a fulfillment of Daniel 11. What's the problem I have with that now? If if Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled Daniel 11, then he also fulfilled Daniel 7. And I can no longer ascribe those to the Antichrist. That is a common opinion, very common. This happened in 168 B.C. So, after the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, Antiochus made it all the way in there. This is, uh, in Jewish history, this is uh, Judas, this is the Maccabean Revolt. Judas Maccabus led a revolt of Jews, and he defeated Antiochus Epiphanes. It's in Jewish culture to this day. They remember this event, that rebellion that was so successful. And many of them will tell you this is the fulfillment of Daniel 11, the abomination of desolation. Jesus Christ disagrees, suffice to say. He said in Matthew 24, 15 through 16, Mark 13, 14, and Luke 21, 20, that this is not fulfilled here. It is a future event. Would he know being omniscient? You, see, you would think that would solve it for theologians, but it doesn't. You'd think it'd settle it, but it, it, it does not. This, this view is very widely head, held today, what I call the Laodicean view, or the Christ-less view. Why wouldn't I expect it to be here today? Anyway, the Assyrians came and took after this, also, sorry, not after this, the Assyrians came and took ten of the twelve tribes as well. So I have the Babylonian attack on Jerusalem. I have Antiochus Epiphanes in 168. I also had the Assyrians come in before Babylon in 721 or so B.C. Uh, they took ten tribes. That's about when Samaria fell. They took ten tribes back to Assyria. Two remained, so they took the northern uh, aspect, the, nor- the northern area of Jerusalem. Of Jer- I'm sorry, of Israel. Can barely talk. And then, uh, so Samaria fell about 721. That was the final of ten tribes, and they were all put into captivity. So it's not the first captivity of Jews. It's the first loss of Jerusalem, as you know, Sennacherib came for Jerusalem also after he conquered Samaria. It wasn't him, but uh, he came and he uh, put a siege on Jerusalem in 701 B.C. All of this history to make you ask, what is it about 
the Babylonian captivity that starts the clock of Daniel. You might remember Sennacherib. He came for Jerusalem, as I said. And who? And he had uh, 185,000 troops, more than enough to destroy Jerusalem. He was unable to do it. What stopped him? Do you know? The angel of God stopped him. Who's that? The angel, not an angel, not a angel. That would be grammatically incorrect. The angel of God, the angel of the Lord, came at night and killed all 185 Assyrian soldiers. Does that remind you of anything? I bring this up again because Jesus Christ is the angel of God. It is one of his many names. Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. That's one of the names of Christ. Everlasting Father. Son of Man, Ancient of Days. I am the Lamb of God. The angel of God. That's one of his appellations. Just a list of a few of them. When he calls himself, the angel of the Lord, the angel of God. Exodus 14:19 being the most known foremost, we can expect something extraordinary to be revealed. Exodus 14. What happened? The angel of God was there. It says in Exodus 14:24 and Exodus 13:21 that the angel of God was inside the pillar of cloud. You can go to Ezekiel and find out how that works, what the inside of the pillar of God looks like. Jesus Christ is on his throne inside the pillar of cloud, surrounded by the cherubim at Exodus 14. All of the incidents of Exodus 14 have that as an over, have that condition of Christ overhead, for lack of a better term. What's he going to do? Well, he takes the chariot wheels off of the Egyptian chariots. Did you know that? While they are in the midst of the Red Sea, pursuing the Israelites, Egypt is, the chariots lose their wheels. Now, why does God do that? He could have vaporized them. But instead, he takes the wheels off. And this is where he divides the Red Sea. What's Moses' role? You ever watch the magicians on TV? I've gotten interested in how easy it is to fool people in the church. Because we have no wisdom. So I've studied magicians just for fun. And the magician doesn't do anything. Who does all the work? The girls. That's who does it all. There's four or five of them and they fit themselves in little boxes and they have all their costumes and they do everything. And they're running around exhausted. What does the magician do? That's what he does. And the box. Whoever designed the box. And the mirrors and the lighting and all the rest of that stuff. That's who did all the work. The magician goes. 
Christ divides the Red Sea. He's God. He makes it into dry land, Exodus 14, 21 through 23. He causes the sea to heap up. He causes the sea to return. There are no survivors, Exodus 14, 28. Not so much as one Egyptian of the army of the Pharaoh remained. That's what the Bible says. Killed them all. He killed all of Sennacherib, 185,000. He kills all of the Egyptians. How many do you suppose there were chasing? How large was Israel's contingent when they left? Millions. Maybe as much as two and a half million. Certainly over a million. How many Egyptians chased them? How large an army did Pharaoh have? Hundreds of thousands. Killed them all. The angel of God is often misunderstood. What I mean by that is in the sense that the modern church doesn't even know that's Jesus Christ. Don't don't even know. Watch the movies and the plays. They do not show the pillar of cloud. They do not show the throne. They do not show the cherubim. They do not show Christ on the throne inside the pillar of God taking the wheels off of the chariots and killing the Egyptians. They actually show Moses doing doing it, don't they? At least parting the Red Sea. Exodus 12.29, angel of the, of the Lord, the angel, what's he do? It's the Passover. It's the tenth plague. What does he do? Jesus Christ, what does he do? The deaths of the firstborn. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Killed by Christ. It definitively says it. Exodus 13.15. Ask why. The contemporary church today has no depth of understanding on these things. Doesn't know why. Has no wisdom. And we'll get into this in the weeks to come because it fits so uh, it's necessary to understand Revelation 17.9. For today, we're going to note the removal of the chariot wheels. Why do you suppose he did it this way? I'm taking answers from the audience. I have a bag of M&Ms. I have nine of them. Why do you suppose? Talk to me. Why did he take the chariot wheels off? Why did God, omniscient creator God, remove the chariot wheels? What should you... Yes, ma'am. You get... You get uh, almost hit Maria in the head. Uh, oh, she's suggesting that there's archaeological evidence. Um, he left them there in the bottom of the Red Sea for us to find. Um, and there is certainly... It's really nice when we have evidentiary elements there. It says, it absolutely says, participatory, listen, this is like a, like a, a free trophy. Even if you don't get anything right, you just, yeah, participation M&Ms is what we got going here. Um, <laughs> uh, the Bible actually says that he, that they said, whoa, our wheels have been removed. What do you suppose? I think Jenna is right. We have found evidence of chariot wheels in the Red Sea. So he removed them but left them intact, apparently. He could have just dissolved them, couldn't he? 
What's that? I'm going to ask a couple of questions for you. Where were the chariot drivers when he did it? I have hundreds of thousands of, of uh, multiple hundreds of thousands of uh, Pharaoh's soldiers going here. If the nation of Israel was here, okay, let's put Red Sea has heaped up. So there we go. Red Sea has heaped up. Israel is here. Where are the chariot drivers? Let me ask another question. Had they made it across? Let me ask another question. I want you to note Exodus 14.27 on this. Who is faster, a chariot driver or a foot soldier? Chariot driver is faster. Who is faster, a chariot driver or a horseman? Chariot driver is faster. Chariot drivers are the first one into the Red Sea. God turns it into dry land. They're the first of the pursuers. And then their wheels come off. There's your idiom, right? Their wheels come off. And what do they do? It says, Exodus 14.27, they flee back into the Red Sea. Why would they do that? They also recognize immediately, uh-oh, I have big problems. That uh, I, God is fighting. So how, had they come across, had Israel seen them? And then he takes their wheels off and they return. They flee back. I've often thought about this, as you know, if you've ever heard me do this. What are these people thinking? I mean, my goodness. I have a pillar of cloud overhead. This thing has got to look amazing. The noise has got to be amazing. I see the Red Sea heaped up. It's, to heap up the Red Sea might have water as high as a thousand feet, maybe even more. I'd have to go back and look at the engineering on that. Enough for two million people. How wide do I have to be? How tall is that water? How much does that water weigh? What would that much weight of water? We, I was here, aged myself again, when that um, 200 foot wave hit Valdez. A couple of you else were here. Do you know what it did to the people? They got hit by that. Liquefied them. That's a tremendous... It was moving at 200 miles an hour approximately. It was 200 some feet high in places. It destroyed the whole town of Valdez. That wave hit cliffs, I think on the Aleutian chain, correct me if I'm wrong, That well over 200 feet. That's a lot of water. And when it hits, it just pulverizes, powderizes everything. And these guys are going, hey, let's chase them. I just can't get that. Here is somebody that is able to, something has allowed these waters to heap up thousands of feet, the Israelis to go across, and I'm going to go through that. It made no sense then, and it makes less sense now. Why did he take the wheels off? You have to answer that question eventually. We should do that today, but we're not. I just want you to pay attention to the extinction of the Pharaoh's army. 
I want you to compare it to the extinction of Sennacherib's army, the Assyrians. I want you to begin now to start putting together all the extinction events. Uh, Genesis 7, that's an incredible extinction event. That's a Noadic flood. He used water again, didn't he? Uh, Sodom, the Passover 10th plague. Ezekiel 38 is an extinction event. Revelation is an extinction event. Almost all of it. The Great Tribulation. The final satanic rebellion of Revelation 20, Revelation 27 through 9 is a mass extinction. That last one is Satan's final attempt. It has particular importance. It is the last thing that Satan does. And we should read that because I think it will be very helpful. So let's go to Revelation 20 and look at 7 through 10. Now, when the thousand years has expired, that's the millennial messianic kingdom reign, Satan will be released from his prison. Why is he in prison? God has a reason. You won't be able to use Satan made me do it for a thousand years. It will be our own depravity. That's a joke, but also, I think, has validity. When the thousand years has expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. This is the Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38 is a Gog and Magog. You have to know the difference between Gog and Magog and Gog and Magog. This is true of them. To gather them together to battle, whose numbers is of is as the sand of the sea. How many sands do we have in the sea? How many people are alive? After a thousand years of, of almost no death, how many people do we have? How many people did we have a hundred years ago in the earth? A hundred years ago with all kinds of death. Now we have almost six billion. We're going over, we're going to hit seven billion it starts to grow. You have a thousand years of relatively little death. How many people are there? Sands of the sea. They went up, they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So what's the last thing that Satan does? The last thing that Satan does is he attacks the beloved city. He can do anything, can he? This is what he predicts, or this is what he intends to do. He goes after the beloved city. Where, what is the beloved city? Obviously, it is Jerusalem. Who beloves it? God beloves the city. It's God's Beloved city of Jerusalem. Why is it a beloved city? Satan is nothing if not relentless. He intends for Jerusalem to be a place of mass extinction. How is it that he's able to raise these great armies in an attempt to kill God? And he always goes after Jerusalem. Why is he doing this? What is his motive? What is Jerusalem to Satan? What is Jerusalem to God? Clearly, it goes all the way back, doesn't it? 
Jerusalem is a key, if not the key component here. It goes all the way to Satan's fall. Something about Jerusalem. We're going to fight over it all the way to the end. Okay, back to the four beasts of Daniel. <coughs> Excuse me. God gives to Daniel this vision, this dream, this vision dream that tracks parallel with the captivity of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been captured. Who's captured it? The beloved city has been captured by who? Babylon. Revelation 17.9. Let me reword this now for you. The whore of Babylon, the great harlot, has taken Jerusalem in Daniel 7, Daniel 2. Jerusalem has fallen. The beloved city overwhelmed by the whore, the harlot of Babylon. It's in ruins. And, and Daniel laments and he cries out, How long shall Jerusalem be under the feet of the Gentiles? Is Jerusalem under the feet of the Gentiles today? Yes, it is. And every day the Jews want to know, when will this no longer be the case? And God answers Daniel with four beasts. Uh, before I, I forget, there's another item I need to keep on the table here. The Romans tore Jerusalem apart in a like manner of the Babylonians in 70 A.D. They have found evidence of Titus's uh, siege. How interesting UNESCO comes out and says that there is no Israeli tie to the Temple Mount. And then a couple of days later, the architectural community comes out and says, we have found where the Roman General Titus has attacked Jerusalem when it was covered with Jews. Oops. What causes, causes, that's a human inside of time frame of reference, place of observation, not God's way of looking at it, my way of saying it badly. Does that make sense? I hope it does. The Titus, the Romans coming is because Israel did not pay uh, taxes to the, to the empire of Rome. That is what everyone will say. That is not why Jerusalem was destroyed. It was destroyed because the Jewish religious rulership and sociological religious rulership uh, and political uh, leadership reject Christ. When they do, the rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah King, and they did it on the basis that he was Satan. They said he is the seed of the serpent. He is the second person of the satanic triad. That's what they called him. Because they did that, because Israel's religious and ruling orders do that, reject Christ to his face. God is in the flesh and physically before them. And they reject him on the basis that he is the seed of the serpent, the Antichrist. That is called in Scripture the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is a national sin, not an individual sin, in case you were thinking you could do it. You cannot. Be not so arrogant. Anyway, Daniel is given these four beasts. And over the years, the commentators and scholars of Scripture have presented many conjectural considerations. The consensus is, is that, the begin, that the beasts begin with Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. I agree with that. That would be the most meaningful to Daniel. 
And Daniel would know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He would see that heart of the man. And he would know that's Nebuchadnezzar. That would identify Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. And Daniel would be able, as I said last week, to start the clock. He could tell time. He would know what time it was. He would know, boom, here is when the clock starts on when God will remove the Gentiles' feet from his beloved city. And I agree uh, uh, that this is a strong position, a strong assertion. Not everyone thinks I'm correct here. I, I eventually think they will come to my side. I do. I really do. I think it will be obvious. I see a similar situation with the Apostle John in Revelation 17.10. John also has the ability to tell time, just like Daniel. Five have fallen, one is. One is. As soon as you tell John that, he knows what time it is. He also knew when Daniel's clock started. He knew it started with Nebuchadnezzar, and now one is. And he might not know how the four beasts fit into the seven heads. I think he did know. He's John the Apostles, but I, uh, Apostle. But I'll allow for the possibility that he didn't know. But John could count. He could tell time from what he is regardless. You see, uh, G- Revelation 17, 8 through 10 gave John two critical pieces of information. One, John knew the beast was. He knew when the beast was, was. John saw the beast. John knew the beast. He knew the beast was, and he knew the beast is. He knew the beast not is. Is not. John knew without doubt that the Roman Empire was the sixth head of the seven heads because it is the one head that is. And they had control of Jerusalem. Did I say two things? I hope I said three things. Three critical pieces of information. And third, he knew the beast was the seventh and the eighth head. So he knew that this is the one head that, he knew this was a head. He knew that he knew this head. And he knew this head right now was the Romans because every Jew knew who was in control of Jerusalem at all times. They do today. He also knew that he knew the beast. So once he knew who the beast was, and he did know who the beast was, and he knew that the beast is not, Yet is, John understood those three things. So he knew what time it was. He also knew that the beast was the seventh and the eighth head. And right now, the Roman Empire is the sixth head of the seven heads. Now back to Daniel. There have been quite a lot written on the four beasts. 
most of you are aware of all of it and you've read most of it and good for you. You should. And everyone, most everyone concedes that the lion uh, is the Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar. And he is also the king. There's no collective agreement, consensus, as to the identification of the fourth beast of Daniel. The dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong iron tooth beast. The Bible calls it different from the other three beasts, and it has ten horns. And as soon as you find out that it has ten horns, then you should know immediately that we are back to Revelation 17.7. The ten horns of Revelation 17.7. Revelation 17.12-18. through 18. So let's go back. And read that, Daniel 7. Oops. I'll leave that there until next year. And read this again, knowing that it connects to Revelation 17.7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Daniel knew that was Babylon. He knew that that man was Nebuchadnezzar. And suddenly another beast. He also knew that heaven was raising these beasts up. And another beast, the second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth because it, between its teeth. And they said, thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. He knew that Babylon had fallen to the Medo-Persians. He witnessed that as well. He was an old man at the time. But he would recognize the second beast. And he would know, again, what time it is. He's got to get through these four beasts. At the end of the four beasts, Jerusalem's no longer... The beloved city is free. The beloved city has been under siege, under control, since 586 B.C. And you can make a case of Nehemiah and Herod and all of that Roman rule versus some of that. We'll get into it as the time goes by. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, this is a big deal here. A fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different. Something different about it from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Aha! Big aha! Ten horns. Revelation 17. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there, there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. And then it goes on to describe the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. 
Along with this description of the fourth beast with the ten horns is this, an, is this order, this order. I hope you saw the order that ensues. Daniel was considering the ten horns, no doubt noticing the similarity to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar had his, his dream, his image. He had an image, as you might remember. Neb's image, dream, and he has a, a statue. If you, he ends up building one. He makes one almost 90 feet tall. But it had ten toes. The fourth beast. Oh, oh, interesting thing is the toes are partly iron. The fourth beast has iron teeth and has ten horns. Daniel was considering that. He would figure that out, would he not? He noticed the similarities between the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2. The fourth kingdom of iron, Daniel 2.40, the iron kingdom that shatters and breaks everything to pieces. The iron kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar has ten toes. Daniel 7, the fourth beast, had iron teeth. Daniel 2, 40-43, the fourth kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's image has iron that crushes and the mystery of iron that's mixed with clay. And that is a great mystery. They will mingle with the seeds of men, Daniel 2.43. Who is they? How do they mingle? Where else do I have mingling? What is this iron and clay? We'll peer into that next week. Feel free to read ahead. The point for now, iron is a characteristic of the fourth kingdom and the fourth beast as is ten horns and ten toes. So that tells me that the fourth beast of Nebuchadnezzar's image and the fourth beast of Daniel's vision, same thing. Revelation 17:12. The ten horns have uh, the ten horns, the ten twelves, or, or toes, sorry, are further illuminated in Revelation 17. So this is Daniel 2. This is Daniel 7. Now here's Revelation 17. I have a beast as well there, and it has ten horns. It hasn't come yet. Five have fallen, one is. So we have some known knowns now. The ten horns, the ten toes, are told to us in Revelation 17 that those are ten kings. They are also ten kingdoms. So we know that the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image are ten kings, ten kingdoms. We know the vision of the different beast, its ten horns are ten kings, ten kingdoms. Revelation 17.12 says the reigns are short. They're kings who are future to John. And their reigns are really short. They're only going to reign for an hour. 
These kings give themselves and their kingdoms to the scarlet beast to make war with the Lamb. So with these pieces now placed properly, it becomes possible to reach some settlement here with the aspects of the seven heads of Revelation 17. As I said, we have some known knowns. At the time of John, five had fallen and one is. Five heads had fallen. At the time of Daniel, one beast, Daniel 7, had fallen, the lion. Not quite. He falls in the lifetime of Daniel. At the time of John, the sixth head, John was living, the sixth head is, John was living when the, at the time, within the time of the sixth head. The sixth head of John's time would metastasize into ten horns as it got to the end. So the ten horns of the sixth head is the end of the sixth head. The fourth beast of Daniel 7, 7 is a dreadful and terrible, the one that is different. How is it different? This different devouring beast also has ten horns. To repeat, in Daniel 2, 40, it has ten toes in its last phase. The ten toes are at the bottom of the image. So I have the two legs. And the ten toes, the toes at the end, it's, it is an ordered uh, image. Therefore, what do we now know? The sixth head of John, Revelation 79, is the fourth beast of Daniel 7. The legs of, the, of iron of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so the legs of iron... The fourth beast of Daniel 7, and the fourth beast, I'm sorry, the sixth head of John, all the same. Let me repeat it. The sixth head of Revelation 17, 9 is the fourth beast of Daniel 7. It's also the legs of iron of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 2, 33. And this is where everyone under the age of 60 has pulled out their phones and has subtracted four from six. Us elderly, amongst you, technologically dependent, we're able to accomplish this by long-forgotten method. We also arrive at two. I know, it's incredible. I got that. The question then becomes, who are the first two heads? Does that make sense? If the sixth head is the fourth beast, of Daniel 7 and the toes mixed with clay of Daniel 2. And I have six heads. I only accounted for four of them in Daniel. I'm missing two. If Babylon is not one of the first two, then it's the third head. What is the defining criteria that God utilizes to make a head a head? Why is Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar a head? Why is Medo-Persia, if that comes next, and it does, why is that a head? If the leopard is uh, is Alexander the Great, as he swept through and took his, the beloved city as well, as he came through and, and occupied it, why is he a head? Why is China not a head? Nor is India. Why not? Who's a, 
tin king. Who gets to be a tin toe? Based on what? Ten toes, ten kings, are mixed with clay. Who are these guys? What establishes a toe? As you research this, you'll discover the Egyptian-Assyrian view, along with the Babylonian position and others. This isn't the first Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar isn't the first Babylon. The first Babylon is Nimrod. He is the one that establishes the great whore. He establishes Babylonian paganism, which we practice today. Every Ishtar, we take Nimrod's Ishtar, and we go around going, Ishtar, Ishtar, hunt for little eggs and rabbits and do fertility goddess nonsense. That's what the church does. It'll do it three, four, five months from now. We are so dumb, we have no wisdom. We, we can't get dumber. Oh, I shouldn't say that. We can. We reward dumb. That wasn't always the case in this country. But you'll see this Egyptian Assyrian view along with the Babylonian position and others. First Babylonian Nimrod, which makes Nebuchadnezzar the second Babylon. Which who becomes the third Babylon then? The Antichrist becomes the third Babylon. He also becomes the fourth Babylon, which makes that's the Babylon Babylonian premise. One, three, seven, and eight. Does that make any, do you have any idea why I put that on the board? Nimrod, who's the second head if Nimrod's the first? Nebuchadnezzar, Antichrist, Antichrist. He's the seventh and also the eighth. If Nimrod is the first head, who then is the second head? And remember, the mother of all abominations sits on every head. You can hopefully see that the Roman Catholic Church can't fulfill this condition as much as so many wish to make it so. The Roman Catholic Church is best seen as Thyatira in Revelation 2, 18 through 29. I think that's the case. That's going to give me a lot of hate mail from every direction. That'll be okay. That aside is a final thought for this segment today. There exists in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Revelation 17 this exciting pattern. Revelation 17, the seven heads are revealed. One is dreadful, is different. It has these ten kings, ten toes, and the Antichrist is its final king. The lamb appears, the lamb kills the ten kings and the Antichrist, and the reason is given why the lamb does that and how the lamb does it. The lamb does it because the lamb is the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things. In Daniel 2, in the image of Nebuchadnezzar, or the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, four of the seven heads are given. You have the head of gold. It's the head of the image of Nebuchadnezzar. You have the chest and the arms of silver. You have the belly and the thighs of bronze. And then you have the legs with the toes of iron. That is the dreaded crushing beast that you see in Revelation 7. At Daniel 7, again, the four heads of John's, of the seven heads of Revelation 17 are made known. They're known knowns. Again, ask why these four? The lion, the bear, the leopard, and the dreadful iron beast with ten horns again. And a little horn arises, Daniel 7, 8. I hope you saw me read it. He plucks out three of the ten horns 
So now what? Is he one of the ten toes? Or is he the eleventh? Three are killed, leaving eight. When does this happen? The Ancient of Days, though, comes after that, right, in Daniel 7, Daniel 7:11, and he kills the beast again. So I have the same pattern as Revelation 17. The Son of Man, Ancient of Days, kingdom is established forever, shall not pass away. Daniel 7:14, same exact pattern as Revelation 17. His kingdom is everlasting. And Nebuchadnezzar's image, his image is destroyed. By who? By what? The rock, the stone. So the image comes, is built, is standing there. The rock comes and destroys it. Kingdom is everlasting. The mountain, this huge mountain is uh, comes. And here is the mind that has wisdom, right? His kingdom is everlasting. The stone is everlasting because um, he's the son of man. And the son of man is infinite God. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kingdoms. Next week, we'll keep pursuing wisdom. Pursuit of a mind that has wisdom. I hope. I know that's very confusing. I know it's difficult to assimilate and get control of. But the more I beat you over with it, the beatings continue and uh, the more it becomes clear. And now you have an understanding of the age at which you live. Which age are you in? You're in these ten toes. You're right up against it. When the ten toes show up, when the ten kings show up, when the ten horns show up, we out of time. You need to put the watch in a drawer. Because here it comes. No one has seen the ten toes, the ten horns, the ten kingdoms, the ten kings. It's never been seen. But it's on its way.